grab a Bible, and we're going to have a look at page 1186. So we started last week with this trundle through uh, this letter. Not the sort of letter that you write for people to sort of sit down and read a letter that was written to be read out loud at a gathering a little bit like this. Probably would have been similar numbers to this, 30 or 40 people uh, gathered probably in somebody's front room in Thessalonica, um, a city in Greece, part of, a, uh, the, part of the Roman Empire, but a Greek-speaking bit of it, uh, thoroughly part of, in those days, what would have been thought of as the modern world. And uh, if you remember from last time, especially if you don't, I ought to remind you that uh, this is a city that Paul has arrived in and was eventually driven out of, um, had to depart under cover of darkness, uh, in threat for his life and certainly his livelihood and his safety, because he'd come bringing the good news of Jesus. He'd been telling them about the one who is the king of the universe, the one who sits on the throne of all time and eternity, and for the, the good Roman citizens of Thessalonica, and especially, actually, the, the, the people of the Jewish faith, who up till then had had a sort of precarious sort of coexistence uh, with things Roman. They didn't want to stir the pot too much. They were sort of allowed to practice their faith. Uh, they didn't want to sort of cause too much trouble. And here was uh, Paul coming and preaching in the synagogue about another Lord and Savior. Uh, and actually, Lord and Savior is exactly what the emperor was called. This was a, a direct threat to Rome, they would have felt. And so uh, Paul and his companions had to escape. Uh, had a pretty tough time in Thessalonica, had a pretty tough time at the next place he went to. And we think by now he's in Corinth and he's writing this letter. And he's doing so because he had some fantastic good news from Timothy, who'd gone back to check on them. Don't forget, there's no other way of communication in those days apart from actually visiting somebody and then receiving news back. And the good news is their faith is thriving. The good news is that they are uh, going on with Jesus. But the issue is, can they really trust the words of Paul, this good news that Paul brought, when they start being under pressure themselves, when life gets a bit tougher, when they're either under persecution, or when maybe their livelihood is in doubt, or when somebody starts to, to whisper against them, are they going to be able to trust what he said? And I'm simply, I'm not actually going to read all the 16 verses um, of chapter 2, because I don't think I could even begin to do them justice. I'm going to simply read the first... Um, let's decide. I think we'll read the first 10 or 11. Let's go to 12. Why not? Uh, page 1186. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as people and approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, the good news. We're not trying to please men and women, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put up a mask to cover our greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from you, from anybody else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And you are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've really only got one thing to say um, uh, that I I feel God sort of poked me with this week as I've been thinking about this. Um, If you want more on this passage, listen to the podcast from this morning. Um, I didn't actually preach this morning. Uh, A friend of mine uh, called Ben, uh, Ben Evans, who's a member of um, St. Paul's Hounslow West um, and is um, trained alongside Rachel and John Wooden as a licensed lay minister. Um, Ben came and preached this morning. He was fantastic. Uh, So if you either nod off in my talk um, or you just think there must be more to it than that, you're probably right. Go and listen to what Ben said, because it was quite different, but the two, you'll be glad to hear, don't contradict each other. They're just extra layers. Um, uh, It's tremendous. Um, But the thing that really hit me as I read this was the whole idea of what it is to be um, a person of authenticity, a person of integrity, somebody who is the same inside and out, somebody who is trusted. And it seemed to me that as I read this, the whole thrust of what Paul was saying runs entirely counter to the whole spirit of the age in which we live. I think it'd be safe to say that um, cynicism these days isn't seen as a vice, but increasingly a virtue. You know, as a, a child grows into an adult, one of the things you're sort of almost half looking for, even if you don't quite admit it to yourself, is that they become a bit more cynical. It's seen as part of the new maturity of our age. Now, you don't have to go back very far, and cynicism would have been seen to be universally a bad thing. I'm pretty certain now that most of us would think, well, a little bit of cynicism is probably going to keep our kids safe, probably keep us safe. The fly that comes through the door saying that someone's looking for your house, your house exactly, all you've got to do is put it on the market, and you're going to get oodles of money for it. The pop-up screen on your computer saying, you, you alone, you're the thousandth visitor, you're going to get this fantastic prize, the phone call at work or at home that sounds too good to be true, and of course always is too good to be true, or the phone call that says, we believe your computer's been virused, could you give us access, we're going to help you. A healthy dose of cynicism seems increasingly actually a really important life skill. Without it, we fear that we're going to be gullible and vulnerable. And if cynicism has become one of the life skills of our age, my suggestion is that authenticity is increasingly seen as the antidote to all that cynicism reveals. It's the sort of holy grail, isn't it, of political discourse these days, to be authentic. I'm not alone in thinking that almost certainly the thing that has got Trump, I'm sorry to mention him even out of my mouth in this context, but anyway, the thing that has got Trump to where he is more than anything else is a sense amongst his, his supporters that he is authentic. Here is somebody who doesn't go via the media, who doesn't go via carefully worded, crafted statements of political nuance. Here is somebody who just tweets. And a tweet, that 140, although now in some cases 280 characters, of pure authenticity is seen as revealing who he really is, what he really thinks. And rather than being a politician that is now seen as being pretty much a a way of putting somebody down, you're just like a politician, is pretty much always a bad thing. He is now seen by at least his supporters as being authentically himself, giving an unmediated stream of consciousness. And it doesn't matter that to maybe most of us here, that unmediated stream of uh, consciousness might make our toes curl up so far under our feet, they'll never come out again. The fact is, it's authentic. It's coming from the heart. That's the feel. More positively, authenticity is something that we do value in our friends, 
our colleagues, our family members, something that makes us feel we can trust somebody. They're the same inside and out. We don't feel like we're getting a facade, a face, a presentation. We're getting to know somebody properly. They are who they represent themselves to be. They mean what they say. They do what they do because they believe it. It's a fantastic thing when you meet somebody who has just that, that ring of authenticity about them. The part of social media, I've mentioned Twitter already in, in the midst of all this, is, in, is actually quite complex. On the face of it, you would imagine that social media is an incredible tool for authenticity. If you can put out there on a sort of daily or, for that matter, minute-by-minute minute basis, your innermost thoughts, photos of what you're doing, uh, records of the sort of person that you are, uh, often um, uh, articulating your disasters as well as your triumphs, then surely you're much more authentic. And if you're a public figure, it enables you to make that sort of direct connection with people and show your authentic self. And if you're not a public figure, at least with your friends you don't see every day or your family members the other side of the world or your colleagues when they're not in work, they get to see the real you, or so it seems. But of course, as we're increasingly realizing, and as even those who were part of the original setting up of Facebook are beginning to articulate ever more vociferously and loudly, Social media can become the most unsociable and the most unhealthy of mediums. Because far from being entirely authentic, any way that we present ourselves is always curated. It's always gathered. There's always a choice that we're making as to what we present and what we don't present and how we present it. Do we put on the disaster in our life? And if we do, how do we present it? Do we present it in such a way as to garner as much sympathy as possible? Do we do it in such a way as to represent it as somehow a triumph? Do we show that bit but not this bit? Do we curate this beautiful picture of our lives that other people are going to envy? After all, they see us from the outside in. They only know themselves from the inside out. There's always going to be a big gap between the two. How are we to be authentic? Human beings that are trustworthy, people who can be known, people who have good boundaries to what we reveal, but people who nevertheless can be known as friends, as work colleagues, as family members. And although what Paul is about to talk about here is about his ministry as a minister of the gospel, as far as I'm concerned, this is the big question for us, whether we are ministers of the gospel, if you like, in a paid capacity, or for all of the rest of us who wouldn't put ourselves anywhere near the feet of Paul. This is the big question for us in our workplaces. This is the big question for us in our friendships. This is the big question for us in our families. This is the big question for us as parents, or as friends, or as neighbors. How are we to be in this increasingly cynical age, in this age that is increasingly interested with the, the show of what we are, and yet that is desperate for real authenticity. How do we, with God, live authentic lives? Because it is incredibly hard to pull off. Well, when Paul looks back on his time in Thessalonica, he knows that the people who met him in that synagogue, the place he preached the first three Sabbaths, and then in Justin's house where he preaches for the weeks, perhaps months after that, he knows that they would have had every reason to be cynical. Now, they didn't live in the age of Trump or social media, but they did live in the age of traveling preachers, traveling speakers, traveling salesmen who were peddling something for personal gain. It was well known in those days that there were plenty of people who would go around uh, spinning a yarn in order to get financial or um, 
personal power over people. There are many stories from the time of Paul of people who would come in spinning a yarn about some great magic that they could work, some great superstition that they could offer, some cure that they had in their back pocket, some new way of life that would change who you were. I mean, it sounds very like Instagram, but that they would come offering something fantastic, seem too good to be true, but get drawn in, dragged in, and then the aim was to get your money, to get sexual favors, to get you enslaved. Those were the three things that the writers of Paul's time talk about. And they tell you to beware. They tell you to step around these charlatans, to give them a wide berth. And so when Paul comes, he knows that the people who are going to listen to him are going to be going, well, we've heard this before. You'd forgive us for being cynical. Here you are, Paul. You're coming to us with this astonishing news that the God of the universe loves us so much that he's come in the person of Jesus Christ, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too, that somehow this is God's grace towards us, that we don't have to to earn it by being good and we can't lose it by being bad. It's simply a gift. Paul, it's too good to be true. It cannot be. And therefore, you must be after some personal gain. That would have been the narrative that was going on in Thessalonica. And so Paul is determined, very simply, to say to them, I'm not like that. How do you know? Well, don't just let my words speak, he says. Look at my actions. Don't just hear me defend myself. Look at what I did when I was with you. When you listen to what he says, he makes very clear to them that what they saw in him was those who weren't after money, but were for those who were willing, even in the midst of toil and hardship, to preach the good news. Verse 9 is the best place to pick it up. It says, surely you remember. In other words, use your own memories. This isn't just my words speaking. Listen to what I actually did. Remember what I actually did. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, verse 10, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Here's the point. He's saying to them, look, when I was with you, I easily could have made money out of you. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he makes it clear that those who are in this sort of gospel ministry are allowed to say, do you know what, I need your support. I need you to you know, pay me so that I can actually be free to do this work I'm called to do. But in Thessalonica, Paul makes a deliberate play because of the cynicism around to say, I didn't do that. We know that Paul was a tent maker. We use that phrase now as a sort of metaphor for anybody who goes off to do some sort of ministry in another country or here and if you like earns their money from some trade or some skill that they take in so that they aren't a burden on anyone well that's Paul originated it he literally made tents he would have taken uh, leather and different sorts of cloth he would have sewn them together and he would have made tents for people who were moving around the countryside or looking after sheep or goats or traveling from one place to the other that's what he did that's how he earned his living and so what it means is that Paul worked day and night to earn a living and all his spare minutes he gave to preaching the good news. He says, I didn't take a penny off any of you. I wasn't a burden to any of you. I wasn't here for financial gain. Why was I here? I was here firstly because this is good news. He uses the word gospel or good news time and again in this little passage and in this letter as a whole. He says, I've got good news. The good news of the God who loves us in Jesus. The good news that has transformed my life. Of course I want to pass it on. I don't actually need anything else. I don't need to make money. I've got all the good news I need. I don't need to have power over you. I've got all the good news I need. I don't need status. I'm God's son. 
I belong to God. Well, I don't need any of this stuff. You can trust me, because it's really clear. I wasn't a burden to any of you. But also, secondly, I worked in despite hardship, despite persecution, despite those who were in opposition. I worked despite how hard it was. Verse 2, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. This wasn't a charlatan. This wasn't somebody out to make a mint. This wasn't somebody out after favors or after power. This was somebody who simply had good news to tell. So what's the key? Well, the key to that sort of authenticity to that sort of trustworthiness was incredibly simple to say and incredibly hard to pull off. Fundamentally, he says, I'm not after the approval of people. I'm doing this life for the audience of one. There's only one person in the audience of my life, says Paul. There's only one person whose opinion I value far over everybody else. There's only one person that I care about in the sense of whose opinion about me is so important. And he says, it's God. Verse 4. On the contrary, sorry, let's go back to verse 3. The appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. We're not charlatans. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. He's living his life for the audience of one, the one who made him, the one who knows him, who knows the best about him, who knows the worst of him, who, according to that verse, tests his hearts, and the one who's given him a job to do, to tell the good news of Jesus. Now, we may look at the work of Paul and think, well, that's not me. I'm not a roving evangelist. I'm not a roving missionary. I don't go around planting churches. I don't get thrown out of cities or preaching in synagogues and having to be smuggled out overnight. But it seems to me that as followers of Jesus Christ, we've got exactly the same choice to make that Paul did. The choice is simple. Doing it is incredibly hard. The choice is, do I live my life for the audience of many or for the audience of one? Am I living my life for the approval of all the people around me, primarily? Or is there an approval that trumps, oh, I can't believe that word has disappeared off the, that, that is high above all the rest? And there is. The God whom we know in Jesus, the one who already knows the best and the worst about me. And with that decision comes incredible freedom. Because the problem is that when we're living for the audience of many, we are slaves. We're slaves to what people think of us. It doesn't matter whether I'm trying to be a charlatan and get their money, or whether I'm simply after the status of having other people think well of me. If I want people to think well of me, I have to keep up this, this image, this facade. It's incredibly hard work. It's incredibly hard work to be somebody on the outside that you're not on the inside. If I want people to think well of me, I've got to keep this up. But, says Paul, God, verse 4, God already knows my heart. I don't have to pretend to God. He already knows the worst about me. In fact, he knows the worst that I'm going to do, not just the worst that I've done. He knows the worst about me worse than I do. 
So to live for his approval and to know that in Jesus he does approve of me in the sense that he loves me, he forgives me, his grace is always towards me, he can never turn his back on me, frees me not to worry about anything else, to live for the audience of one. If I don't, then increasingly my life gets hollowed out. I become like one of those chocolate Easter eggs that they've begun already to stock in the shops. Silvery on the outside, a little layer of chocolate, and then just hollow. Because it's all about what's out there. But if I'm able increasingly to make that decision day by day by day, to simply ask God, what do you think? What do you feel? How do I live for you? How do I make you my sole audience? Then inside and out, we're able to be who we are and able to live authentic lives of love. We get to live out and speak out the good news wherever we are, whatever we're doing, because he is the one that matters. Let's pray. Loving Lord Jesus, thank you that in Paul we see somebody who was absolutely trying to live for the audience of one, not the approval of many. We thank you that he knew himself to be known inside and out by you. We thank you for his example of authenticity, not being a burden, not trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, not trying to present somebody that he wasn't. And we simply pray that today and tomorrow and every day you would help us to live lives like that in our workplaces, in our family lives, amongst our friends, that we would be living for the audience of one and therefore be free to live out and to speak out the good news of Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.